I certainly don't think that these universities are going to come up with a magical solution because if there were such a magical solution, they would have found one. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. And this is our weekly roundup where we invite a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. On today's panel, returning to the Roundup, senior advisor at the California Latino Economic Institute, my fellow co-founder of the Lincoln Project. He also lectures on race, class, and partisanship at USC. The one and only squirrel enemy number one, <laughs> Mike Madrid. How you doing, Mike? I'm doing well. As the holiday season's upon us, like the frenzied nature of that, throw on some, you know, Kevin McCarthy resignations and <laughs> Milo Caucus preparations, a few upcoming court dates, and it's uh, it's been a crazy, crazy December, but I'm looking forward to it. Likewise. And that's because making his politicology debut is Olivier Knox. Olivier is a national political correspondent and anchor of the Daily 202 at the Washington Post. He previously hosted a national Sirius XM show and covered politics and policy at Yahoo News, Agence France Press, and is a former president of the White House Correspondents Association. Olivier, it's a pleasure. Welcome to Politicology. Thanks very much. I thought of announcing myself via a cameo video of uh, former Congressman Santos and then thought the better of it. First this week, the newer, darker, and more dangerous Donald Trump and whether we can put restraints in place before the 2024 election. Then we'll discuss Liz Cheney continuing to sound the alarm on the threat Trump poses and her hint at a possible, likely, presidential run. Later, we'll look at the remarkably bad testimony from the presidents of Harvard, Penn, and MIT. After the main show, we'll head over to Politicology Plus, where we're going to talk about, that's right, Kevin McCarthy's resignation and why lawmakers are ditching Congress at a record pace. To join us for that discussion, plus more ad-free episodes on a private podcast feed, go to politicology.com slash plus, or click the link at the show notes at the top of your episode today. Over the last several months, there has been a steady drumbeat of reporting about how Donald Trump plans to use a second term in the Oval Office to seek revenge against his political opponents. Starting last spring, Trump has been telling rally goers that he is their retribution. Last month, a team at the Washington Post reported that Trump has told his advisors that he wants the Justice Department to investigate former allies, including John Kelly is former chief of staff. Kelly is the guy who confirmed the suckers remark about the military members. Bill Barr is former attorney general. Barr, you'll remember, didn't back the election fraud claims and called the D.C. indictment damning. Then there's General Mark Milley, former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Milley was concerned that Trump would try to start a war with Iran to remain in power. Uh, Ty Cobb, his former attorney, who left the White House because of Trump's comments and tweets about Bob Mueller. Trump has publicly vowed to go after Joe Biden and his family. He has publicly weighed pardoning and protecting the people who tried to overturn and steal the 2020 election. And this week, The Atlantic published a series of pieces about what could happen if Donald Trump returns to the White House. David Frum wrote, here's the full quote, in his first term, Trump's corruption and brutality were mitigated by his ignorance and laziness. In a second, Trump would arrive with a much better understanding of the system's vulnerabilities, more willing enablers in tow, and a much more focused agenda of retaliation against his adversaries and impunity for himself. When people wonder what another Trump term might hold, their minds underestimate the chaos that would lie ahead. 
So Olivia, I want to start with you. When you look at what we could possibly see in a second Trump term, what are the big flashing alarms to you? And do you think that it's been undercovered? Do you think that there's a disconnect between our ideas about Donald Trump or the country's ideas about Donald Trump in his first term and what we would likely see in a second? Let me uh, let me take those in, in reverse order. I I I uh, I think that there's a there's a bit of a gap between undercovered and then underappreciated by the public. I think they I think it's been covered actually pretty well. Um, you know, the Washington Post, the New York Times, the Atlantic, the Associated Press have all written pieces uh, talking about various dangerous aspects of a second Trump term. Uh, you know, the use of the military to crush any protests against him, um, the the weaponization of the Department of Justice. The uh, uh, just all these, you know, the, the new crackdown on on immigration, on legal immigration. Um, I think it's been covered just fine. Um, it, it's nice to see. You know, that one of the problems with the U.S. media is we are regularly better at telling you whether something will happen than helping you understand whether it should. And um, and so I think I don't think the coverage has, has been that bad. Actually, I think it's been pretty thorough. It's reached a, a really broad audience. It it has not. I don't think it has changed a lot of people's minds in part because not everyone is sort of terminally online and and hooked up to the the you know political dopamine machine the way that we are for example you know i've i i went to my went to my high school reunion this past summer and you know they were my some of my good friends were completely disconnected from politics entirely much more preoccupied with their daily lives um and so so some of this stuff no matter how big the headline doesn't get a ton of attention from people who are not uh, heavily invested in politics in terms of what we think we know about a second Trump term, I think it's um, it's really notable that all of this reporting relies on his own words and the words of his advisors. Like this is not conjecture; it's not speculation. Um, you know, as you as you pointed out, he has been telling people that he is their retribution. He described his opposition as vermin, which is a worrisome term uh, with connections to past authoritarian regimes. Um, and so the the thing that the thing that gets me now is less the specific projects, although of course the idea that you would gut the federal workforce in order to put in loyalists is not a reassuring one. I think what's really striking to me is that he would be coming in with a team um, that saw the first term, uh, knows where the the fault lines are, and is a hundred percent willing to implement whatever he wants to do. You know, um, Ryan's previous Kelly, a few other folks did feel like they were part of, they, they supported the Trump agenda, but they were also part of the guardrails in, in the, in the first term. Um, I, those people are not going to be in a second Trump administration. And so one of the things that's kind of concerning is that he's putting together, Axios had a pretty good piece on this uh, today, I think, about the different kinds of people that you could expect to see coming in. And, you know, one of the things people say that the guardrails held last time around, um, respectfully, I have to disagree. You know, I'll cite just one. Um, uh, the sitting president made a bundle of cash off foreign governments while in office. That guardrail simply did not hold. And so people who are saying like, oh, well, you know, the, the system is resilient, the system can hold. I don't, I'm not as convinced, honestly. I'm not as convinced. Um, and the, and the, the people who uh, are likely to enter if he wins um, are going to be especially defined. What, what, you know, suppose he nominates uh, Cash Patel to be CIA director and the Senate says no, and he installs Cash Patel as, as acting CIA director. Um, okay, well, what then? Right? Um, what, you challenge him through the courts? You think that's going to work? 
Um, I, I just, I think that the, uh, the guardrails did not do a great job last time. And I worry that this time around, they'd be actually just completely overrun. Yeah. Mike, David Frum raised exactly this point that if Donald Trump is, you know, convicted in federal court before the election and he wins, he'd likely pardon himself. Uh, if the courts decide that the president can pardon himself, it raises serious concerns about whether or not the president is actually functionally above the law. Frum's hypothetical is that the president could shoot visitors to the White House and then pardon himself. But if he hasn't been convicted in a in a federal case before retaking office and wins the election, he's you know likely to order the DOJ to stop the federal cases against him. Um, and it would it would sort of make obstruction of justice a uh, you know, a perk of being president at that point. Um, and he'd be attempting to do all of this without, uh, the constraints of having somebody like Rex Tillerson or John Kelly or Jeff Sessions, who, you know, all attempted at least to rein him in, in some way while they were at the office. And the Trump team has now had years to put together a strategy, carry all this out, come up with a, you know, posse of people who can walk into the executive branch in 2025 and get to work, uh, carrying it out. So, Staying just on the prospect of a, you know, Donald Trump second term, how do you think about that? Well, first, I think it's important to understand that there, there is no constitution that can be written that can protect a country or a society from a wide segment or a wide swath of people hell-bent on violating all of the norms that are there. You, you, just, you, just, you just can't. And I think we're realizing that so much of this is was was either unanticipated or is a shock to us as a system because we've never seen somebody so willing to 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 go beyond what anybody would comprehend as 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 somebody occupying the office of the presidency doing now i i think the the other story of this time and era is at least up until this point is going to be that it's incompetence that that really saved us in many in many instances it's just just pure idiocy. Um, and, and whether or not that will be rectified is, I think, going to be the story of a second Trump term if, God forbid, that that should happen. The, 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 the guardrails as they exist, the, the, the adults in the room as they exist, are not going to be the people sitting around him in the Oval. They're going to be two, three, four, five steps down in the bureaucracy at this point, trying to prevent things from happening if, if, if that's where we're going, if we're moving into into extra constitutional or anti constitutional territory, and yeah, that's that's terrifying. It is terrifying, uh, and a lot of this is just simply a story of how how a um, small minority of folks who are hell bent on destroying the institution from the inside can can do it, right? Can do it. There are just so many people that they've lined up that have you know th- these lists of that are willing to to demonstrate their loyalty to Donald Trump as opposed to the constitution and if you're able to do that and pull that off there's there's no there's no structure of government that can can protect that at a certain point i mean the idea of the constitution and the loyalty oath to the constitution is predicated on people actually believing that right and actually doing that once that goes away i mean that's the guardrail the guardrail is the belief in the system once the belief in the system is gone what do you have and that's 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 the scary part because it is it, at some level it does it does become just an absolute free for all, and I uh, there you know there 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 I, I look I, I as somebody who who 
uh, as, a, as a Republican who was vehemently opposed from Donald Trump from day one, I, I still very much struggle with the idea that there were people who were dumb enough to go into the Trump administration thinking that they could be the adults in the room. As we're learning back now, yeah, I guess I, I'm grateful that there were the, the, the Tillys, there were the parent, you know, the Ryan, Ryan's Priebus was the adult in the room, um, I guess. I mean, I think there's probably also an equally valid argument that the less competence uh, 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 and the less the, the less capable some of these folks were in implementing whatever agenda, quote unquote agenda it was that he was pushing, um, could have helped us prevent or stop some of this stuff from happening in the first place also. So I don't know. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I, don't, I think we're probably still close to, too close to that history to really understand. But I do know that from some of the people that have come out of the Trump administration who were, you know, under the idea that they were the, the adults in the room, I, I'm, not, I'm, not, uh, I'm not confident that they were actually doing anything other than um, um, serving as a lapdog for what the administration was actually doing. On this thread, before we turn to the politics and the campaign 2024, there's, there's two thoughts I want to put on the table and you can sort of take your pick. Uh, which ones to address here. One's the idea of executive power and the other's the question of a pardon. So on the executive power front last week, um, Liam Donovan and Lucy Caldwell and I discussed the sort of power of the administrative state and the fear that because the executive branch only seems to get stronger over time, that somebody like Trump could use all of that power to carry out all of his revenge plans. And so one question is, how do you think about executive power in general? Should we have had or can we still have a more robust conversation about curtailing it? Is that even possible? Um, it almost seems silly to ask given the state of Congress right now, but do you think that's a legitimate concern and something that you know maybe the people in power right now ought to be wrestling with, given that Joe Biden and Democrats certainly understand the threat in front of us? Um, and then the second is, should Joe Biden or the Justice Department consider entering into some agreement with Trump to either pardon him or end the prosecution if he ends his run for office, and we can talk about precedent for something like that. Um, you know, 2001, one of my former bosses, John Ensign, resigned from the Senate in part to avoid formal charges. Nixon's vice president, Spear Agnew, was able to use resigning from office as a bartering chip to stay out of jail. Um, but in neither of those cases was the person in question the front runner, obviously, to challenge the sitting president in an election. So those are two sort of big buckets of, of, uh, of conversation. Um, we won't, you know, we won't be able to tease them apart in detail, but I'm just curious how you think about both of those and maybe Olivia, you can start. I'm extremely pessimistic about the ability to curtail executive power. Um, I think we're about to see, um, an example of that. Um, the, you know, the Senate's Rand Paul has a resolution that basically calls for the withdrawal of American troops from Syria. Uh, there was never an authorization for the use of military force in Syria, much less um, a declaration of, of war to allow that to, to proceed. What we see in Congress is nibbling away at the edges of executive power and sometimes uh, sometimes having a real conversation about about curtailing it, especially on like surveillance matters. Um, but you know the 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 broader fact is that over the over the most recent decades we've seen, and I don't know, I'd call, I don't know that I'd call it the, the administrative state. I would actually just point directly to the office of the president and say that, uh, that the, the presidency has just become so, so powerful in part because Congress does not want to assert uh, some of its constitutional prerogatives. So, you know, especially in a, especially in a, in a, in a 
divided Congress. You know, I just don't have a lot of optimism that they're going to come together and say, um, yeah, you know, if you want to keep troops in Syria, you need to actually ask us for, for formal permission. Or, you know, if you want to, if you want to retain these broad surveillance powers, you have to directly address our concerns about, about misuse of those powers, accidental or intentional misuse of those powers. Um, but on balance, I'm, I'm really quite bearish about Congress, um, or even the courts, uh, rolling back the, the powers of the presidency. Mike, do you want to take the pardon potential deal, good or bad for the country, if it avoids a Trump presidency? It's thorny. It, yeah. I mean, it's complicated. And I, I, I think, you know, um, immediately when he asked that question, I, I, I honestly, what I was thinking was, is how enforceable is it with this guy too? Like, right. Is, I mean, it, 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 does anybody really believe that he wouldn't run, um, if not this year sometime, regardless? I mean, he may be running in, when he's 150 years old, you know, uh, I, 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 I don't know. Look, politically, I think it would probably be, um, it's, it's a good way, I think, to, for the country to potentially dodge, dodge a big bullet here. Um, but, uh, you know, I think it's, it has to be something that's obviously not done through or with, with the Biden administration's fingerprints on any of this. That, that gets really messy. And we also know that under whatever pretense Donald Trump would sign and agree to such an agreement that he's going to, you know, once he walks out of the building or he signs it, he's going to change the entire narrative of what this was really all about and the political persecutions. And in, in a way, it, I think it, it sounds almost too easy to resolve a situation because we know that he's not going to play by the same rules or, 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 or operate under the same understanding of what this actually means. So I don't, you know, I, uh, Boy, I don't know. I think I think if they've got him, you know, on these things and they feel confident, I'm still a big believer that it would probably do the the nation more good to go through the really unsettling, uncomfortable, arguably violent period to demonstrate that this country um is a a um country of laws and that no person, no man or woman is above the law. And some of what we have to relearn as a country is that matters. And if we don't do that, what that message, I think, is, is, is something that is sent loud and clear. Um, you, you know, look, I, I'm, uh, I wasn't around during the, 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 the Watergate era or the post-Watergate era, at least. I mean, I was alive, but not certainly not old enough to remember but you know, I, there was a lot of consternation when when Ford pardoned Nixon in the in the electorate. There was a lot, right? I, I think because it, what it does is it does send some sort of message that if some crimes were committed, that the guy at the top can get away with it, and that's so much of what Trump is all about. I think that there are, are Trump's critics. I think rightfully are pissed and angry that this guy seems to skate at every opportunity and he has his entire life. That says something about America. It just does. And, and until that's reconciled, what are we actually doing other than, other than allowing what, what was able to emanate, punting it down the field for the next guy to do it? And I just I think it's problematic. I, 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 I know that it would be an extremely torturous, difficult time for this country to put this guy on the stand to have him be found guilty and to um, have him pay the punishment, however that falls down. But if we don't do that, I think the danger is greater than if we do do that. We're going to turn to our next segment in just a second. We're going to get into the politics of the presidential race. But before we do that, Olivier, 
I'm just curious, and the answer might be no, but is there anything that comes to mind in the world of the possible that could be done now to prepare, maybe not constrain the power of the executive, but to prepare the country, to prepare our system of government for the wrecking ball that would be a second Trump term? Is there anything that you you think might be constructive that we could think about doing now? Wow, that's a billion dollar question, I think. Um, nothing nothing leaps to mind. I mean, there is, again, there's been a steady body of reporting on what Trump himself and Trump supporters say they want to do with executive power in a, in a still notional second term. Um, I don't, I don't know that there is that much. I mean, I, one of the things that I hear, um, Democrats complain about privately is that there's no voice out there defending the institutions, defending the Justice Department, defending the courts, defending um, due process, defend, defending all the things that Donald Trump is complaining about. Um, and they say, you know, Biden can't really do it because that politicizes it. And so who's going to do that? Who's going to stand up for, um, you know, I mean, I guess elected DAs is a little complicated, but who's going to stand up for the court system? Who's going to vouch for um, its functionality and its objectivity? And they certainly don't have an answer for it. Um, and so, you know, I, 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 unfortunately I have to line up with them. I don't, I don't know, but that is one complaint that I hear a lot from, uh, from, from Democrats in Congress and elsewhere. There's just no voice for the traditional institutions, um, of, of, uh, that are under strain because they're under attack by Donald Trump. Yeah, I think that's right. And I, it's something I think about a lot, actually, especially when we hear a lot of bombast over Supreme court decisions that are very often, you know, quite, quite reasonable, but they, you know, it, the the politicization uh, I see a lot of the rhetoric on the left uh, as sort of delegitimizing the the court as a body I think is very concerning and I think that maybe Democrats could work to get that in check a little bit more to understand the decisions that they don't like might still be the right ones. Okay, since the January sixth attack on the Capitol, there hasn't been a louder alarm bell about Donald Trump than the one Liz Cheney has been ringing. With her new book, Oath and Honor, just out, Cheney has been making the rounds on cable news, continuing to ring the alarm bells about Trump. She paints the stakes of a Trump re-election even more starkly than Frum did. Here's what she told the Today Show. A vote for Donald Trump uh, may mean the last election that you ever get to vote in. And again, I, I don't say that lightly, um, and it, it, I think it's heartbreaking that that's where we are, but people have to recognize that, that a vote for Donald Trump is a vote against the Constitution. She has said that reelecting Trump without having people in place to try to persuade him away from his worst impulses would lead to, quote, an unraveling of our constitutional system. She's also talked about the Republicans who haven't spoken out against Trump uh, when Anderson Cooper asked about how many elected officials actually believe Trump's lies? Here's what she said. Um, no, I think the number of people who believe the lies in elected office is very small. I think in the House Republicans, it's it's probably single digits. Um, but but you have a obviously a far larger group of people, some who have determined that they're they're you know going to be fully on board and aggressively supporting and enabling Trump and. A lot of others who've said, we're just, you know, we're going to look the other way. And, and that's really dangerous because then, you know, people around the country sort of start to say, well, it must not be that bad if you don't have that many Republicans speaking out against it. 
So Mike, I want to come to you in a minute to talk about the 2024 uh, race and what a potential Liz Cheney candidacy is going to do to the electoral math in the battleground states. But first, uh, Olivier, I'm curious what you make of this round of media, but specifically how important it'll be for Republicans and former Republicans to continue raising the alarm about Trump and whether it actually is going to make that much of a difference compared to 2020. At this point, isn't it all baked in? I think it's largely baked in, but American presidential elections now are fought in you know tens of thousands of votes in a handful of states. So I think I think it still has the potential to be pretty influential. The issue of intra-Republican criticism of of Trump obviously is one that's uh, been on the on the national table since 2015, 2016, right when the other candidates expected him to somehow flame out. Um, and they they train their fire on each other more than on him. So obviously, this is a recurring a recurring issue in national politics. But um, you know, um, I'm I'm skeptical that even a, you know, like a Mitt Romney who's spoken out against Donald Trump, I don't think he's going to move the needle a lot in the Republican primary. But he might. You know, Liz Cheney, she might. Um, the the indicator we have right now, though, is you know, like Chris Christie on the debate stage making big runs at Trump directly in in the most um, you know, uh, the most assertive language. Um, and he has not, I mean, I don't want to disrespect the former governor, but he's not exactly catching fire in the primary, in the Republican primaries. So um, it is, it is in, uh, it's, 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 I think, largely baked in. But what we don't yet know is um, the impact of some other political forces. The, the general pundit class really played down the potential political impact of the Dobbs decision uh, on abortion. And what we've seen time and time again, including in red states, is that that's proven to be enormously powerful and enormously motivating. And it, it has, in some states, peeled off a couple of really important constituencies. So, you know, if you look at the overlay in, in Ohio of people who voted for Trump and then people who voted to protect access to abortion, you see that actually a fair number of Trump readouts voted in favor of that. And that's largely suburban women, right? So I don't know that intra-Republican criticism of Donald Trump would really swing the needle. But the thing is, we don't know how these other other forces like that will shape the presidential electorate. So one thing that could have an enormous consequence, Mike, I think, is if Cheney's actually on the ballot in some of these swing states. So she's hinted at a possible presidential run in 2024. She said she's seeking to do, I think the quote is, whatever it takes to stop Trump from being elected. And certainly she understands the, uh, the significance of having a, an option to vote for a, rep- a principled Republican on the ballot in key swing states. Um, there was some immediate concern about whether Trump or Biden would benefit from her entering the race. And we've talked a lot about, you know, I put this in air quotes, third party candidates. What we really mean are independent candidates. But there are currently three people running for president besides Trump and Biden of of note, RFK Jr., Cornell West, and Jill Stein, uh, who's obviously on the Green Party ticket. There's also still the likely no labels ticket floating out there, whether it's Huntsman, Manchin, Hogan, whoever they decide to put up. Um, the dynamics of this race are far more fluid, I think, going into the presidential campaign than um, than we've seen in the past because we don't know what the effects of these independent candidates are going to be. So 
How do you see the dynamic changing as not just the number of candidates changes, but who those candidates are and specifically like the significance of Cheney on a ballot line? Well, I, you're, you're framing the question exactly right. So let me, let me say this, and I've said this for the past 18 months or so, the, the, the fundamentals of this race strongly lead towards a Biden reelect. Okay. I think it's probably the best environment uh, given just the, the fundamentals of the race as I see them since probably 1996. Okay. So a good environment. Now, that doesn't mean it's not going to be close. I mean, we, we just, we're going to have races less than 100,000, you know, mar- vote margins with, you know, 140 million cast. That's just the way w- where America's at. And, and, you know, it's been the last 20 years and will probably be that way for the next 20 years. Okay. So I want to put that in context. The biggest threat to a Biden reelection is a third party effort because the math gets more complicated. And this is where I think the pundit class really, really doesn't understand the way voter psychology works in a multi-candidate field because it's so rare that we actually see them. Okay, but it's not, it's not that when, when there's not a bilateral competition, the whole dynamics with, with a third viable candidate actually makes a very significant difference. And what, what seems to be happening is that it, the argument anyway from the polling would suggest that a no-labels candidacy, for example, would pull more votes from Biden. Those people that would leave this kind of college-educated Republican suburban woman Instead of going from Trump to Biden, they'll go from Trump to this no labels candidate to a Larry Hogan type or a Manchin type. And that math doesn't give Biden the two vote swing. And what I mean by the two vote swing is if you take a vote, a a Trump voter who no longer votes for Trump, that's minus one for Trump, but it also goes to Biden, which is a plus one for Biden. So it's that swing really matters because if you take the negative one from Trump and add it to Larry Hogan, yeah, you take one from 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 Trump, but 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 Biden doesn't get the pop that he otherwise would in a two-way race, right? This changes the math equation considerably. It sounds in the weeds, but it's it's very significant. So I'm getting to the point here. Sorry about the long windup. But it's important to understand that if there is a third-party candidate. And and let's also remember, too, how wrong conventional wisdom, at least to this point, has been on RFK running, right? The panic is, oh, he's going to eat all into Biden's, you know, vote share. And I was saying, hold on, we don't don't know know that. And and now now all the polling is showing he's hurting Trump more than Biden, right? So you got to really be careful with the pundits and all the experts, especially people, third party stuff. It's like... People, people who are usually talking about this aren't campaign people who really understand the way voter psychology works, okay? And I say that, with, it's a very big caveat. We just don't know. But here's one thing I think I do know, and it's fair to say. If you do have Cornell West, if you do have Jill Stein, if you do have a Larry Hogan and no labels, um, and you've got a, a, a measurable third party, which is, is really center left, or third parties, you damn well better have a candidate on the right that's running that's going to peel from Donald Trump. You better. So if you've got three candidates running and you don't put up a fourth, then then shame on you because that's the likeliest scenario in which Biden loses. Very likely. Path leans strongly towards a Biden loss. The only way to counter that is to have a candidate who can pull a significant share. And by significant, I mean five to seven points. I don't mean 30 or 40 points. I mean, just enough to move the math. And I believe, and I've, I've been saying it since last summer, people 
you know, jumping on again, people who don't understand campaigns or new campaigns, jumping on me saying, oh, you're going to, you know, that hurts Biden, that hurts Biden. No, it doesn't. If you don't have a fourth, a fourth candidate in the race, Biden's mm-hmm. done. And if I'm wrong, so what? He's going to lose anyway. It doesn't matter whether you lose by six points or seven points. He's still going to lose. You might as well at least put up a valiant effort. I think it's a hell of a lot more than that. It makes a lot more sense. And Liz Cheney is that candidate. Look, Liz Cheney got smoked in her primary, but she still got 20 mm-hmm. points. If she pulled off, if she pulled off half of that from the GOP base in a four-way candidacy, Trump is done. He's done. He's done. Okay? In deep red states, by the way. He's done. So, and, and Cheney knows this. Her people know this. Okay. She's not entering this lightly. And I think what she's saying is, I will do anything. And I believe it. I take her to word. I will do whatever it takes to make sure he doesn't win. You want me to run a, a candidacy focused only on North Carolina, Texas, and Florida, the three states that Trump won by with the smallest margin, less than 5%. I'll do it. I'll run a three, three state campaign to just go after him. And make sure that he, the electoral college map doesn't work in his favor. That's an entirely reasonable, logical solution to the dilemma that we're in. If you've got somebody who's willing to put her life and career on the line uh, for the republic, like Liz Cheney is saying, and I believe her. So why would you not do that? There's, there's very little evidence to suggest that if there's already a third candidate in the race, and I think we're at five right now, that a Cheney candidacy hurts mm-hmm. Biden. Like that's just it's just, it's just there's no math that would suggest that, and even if it did, he's gonna he would lose the likelihood of him losing under that scenario is so great anyway. It's worth taking the chance on. Olivia, I'm curious any other any other thoughts that come to mind when you think about the 2024 uh, election now, um, and also I'm curious what you what you made of Cheney's comments about needing to build a new conservative party potentially, but that that would have to wait until after the 2024 election. I am someone, a voter who would be quite hopeful that she could pull something like that off. I would like as a small C conservative ex-Republican person uh, to have a home where uh, I'm surrounded by people who are actively making classically liberal arguments for governance. Um, Those don't exist anymore. There is no home for people like that anymore. The Republican Party is not that place. And one thing I've been thinking a lot is just how much it's asking of what we've called the Bannon line voters in the past in 2020, the people who uh, abandoned the Republican Party, even if only for the first time in their lives to vote for a Democrat on the presidential ticket, to do that again and hold their nose to vote for potentially uh, the Democratic president when they really disagree with the Democratic Party on a lot of things, a lot of really fundamental things. So I'm curious, that's a lot, long wind up, I'm sorry, but I'm just curious how you no, read that great. landscape it's because great. I think there are a lot of people out there like me. I, I think it's actually it's a great question, and if you look at the last twelve, maybe more, maybe fifteen years, actually, you've seen this sort of slow and steady progression or, or change in America, where the the major parties, which had played this role for ballot access and and, and things like that, um, have seen their influence winnowed down. You know, Barack Obama. Left the DNC a shell of its former shell of its former self because he shifted resources to his OFA group. Right, um, uh, Donald Trump essentially staged a hostile takeover of the Republican Party. Right, and now on the Hill, uh, in the House, not the Senate, but in the House, what you are seeing is politics that look a lot more like European parliamentary politics than they do the two party system. 
because you see, you know, the House Freedom Caucus is acting as as part of a coalition. It's almost like a coalition government um, with the House Freedom Caucus playing one role and then the traditionals playing the other role, et cetera. So we are in a moment of of real transformation, I think, in terms of the relationship between uh, parties and governing and voters. And so I think um, because it's so much easier to get on the ballot now, um, it's it's more tempting to, to to try to start that other party, right? Because you're not as beholden. Yeah, of course, there are plenty of obstacles um, to getting on the ballot. There are plenty of obstacles to a third party. There, that I'm not. I don't want to play those down. Um, you know, we did. We 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 set up a lot of hurdles to try to keep the communists from running successfully. You know, a hundred years ago. Um, and we still have a lot of hurdles, but they're a lot easier to overcome in 2023 America and 2024 America than they were 50 years ago. So there's a potential for a real transformation here, both both because it's easier to run without having a, a, a party behind you, um, and because again we have this weird, really strange dynamic. And you know, I'm I'm half French, so I've seen coalition governments rise and more likely fall uh, for, for, for most of my life. Um, but you've seen this rearrangement, this reshuffling on the Hill that I think, um, suggests that, um, that, that, the, 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 the rigidity of the two party system is, is considerably weakening. Vive la revolution. <laughs> <laughs> on Tuesday, the presidents of Harvard, MIT, and the University of Pennsylvania refused to give straightforward answers on whether the chants on their campuses for the genocide of Jewish people constituted bullying or harassment or violated their code of conduct. Harvard President Claudine Gay, MIT President Sally Kornbluth, and Penn President Liz McGill testified before the House Committee on Education and the Workforce. Elise Stefanik called for all three presidents to resign or be fired. The White House put out a statement about the hearing on Tuesday, which was surprising, saying that, uh, quote, calls for, I think they said it's unbelievable that this even needs to be said, calls for genocide are monstrous and antithetical to everything we represent as a country. Pennsylvania Governor Josh Shapiro called McGill's testimony a failure of leadership and said that her comments were absolutely shameful. 1,500 Penn alumni, donors, and students have called for McGill's resignation. Uh, the board chair of the Wharton School of Business at Penn called on the board to rescind support for McGill. Prominent liberal legal scholar and professor emeritus at Harvard, uh, Lawrence Tribe, called Claudine Gay's testimony troubling. Gay said multiple times that she found the calls for intifada personally abhorrent and at odds with the values of Harvard, but said that until it became conduct or was directed at an individual, it was protected under their free speech policy. And two Massachusetts congressmen uh, and Harvard alumni, both both Democrats, uh, pointed out the hypocrisy of Gay's comments in a statement. They wrote, they wrote, Harvard ranks last out of 248 universities for support of free speech, but when it comes to denouncing anti-Semitism, suddenly the university has anxieties about the First Amendment. It rings hollow. And last but not least, Jonah Goldberg wrote a piece that I found very helpful after this hearing about how this double standard is weaponizing the value of free speech. When people on campus say things they don't like or invite speakers they disagree with, they ignore free speech principles. But when they don't want to step in or when their ideology makes them sympathetic to these calls for genocide, they exploit free speech as an excuse to do nothing. It's like it's a one-way ratchet. We've talked before on the show 
about our protections for free speech present vulnerabilities, very similar to how Russian troll farms were able to use it to influence the 2016 election. Essentially, the values of the West become vulnerabilities for the West. And that doesn't mean we should not have protections for free speech, but it does mean that we should be aware of the potential vulnerabilities. And so I lay all that on the table and just, I I think I just want to ask a very broad question generally. How are you thinking about that double standard and the exploitation of free speech or um, if you think they're hiding behind this value of free speech when it's convenient? Mike, why don't you lead off? Well, short answer is I absolutely think they're hiding behind it when it's convenient. But let me, let me. I mean, again, I really like the way you approach the question, Ron, which is how are you thinking about it? Because it's really a symptom of a much larger problem here. And what I mean is, if you look at the institutions that are under threat and under attack, where, where our society in, in this modern digital age, where we're losing confidence in the, in the necessary institutions to make democracy work, Things like the media and government, uh, military, uh, academy, um, you know, the, the, the church communities, all of these are, are suffering these major losses in confidence. And, and in the Trump era specifically, they've become highly partisan. I'm not suggesting that they weren't before that, but, but they're, they're like on hyperdrive now. And that does them no good <laughs> when trying to make the case for their validity, right? When we need desperately to have more confidence in our institutions, so many of them are, are leaning into this, the partisanship, or, or, or at least allowing. And I, I believe, by the way, they're leaning into the partisanship. And I'm not suggesting that it's necessarily bad when there's an existential threat, but we, I, I don't think we can deny that years and years of doing this have have helped lead us to this moment, but I I I also you know can't can't ignore the fact that there's a particular problem in our higher education system. It's particularly out of touch with reality of, of not only the society it's supposed to serve and the students it's supposed to serve. But I think it's, it's really outside of the, the, the bounds of what the idea of the university is. There's a particular problem in, in the academy. And we saw it on full display. Like the White House had to weigh in and be like, what? genocide. Like, come on. Come on. That, like, that's the line. That's the line everybody can agree with. And to watch these university presidents at some of our most prestigious universities not being able to simply to say that. It lends credibility to the Elise Stefanics of the world, who became kind of the star of the show, right? Leading the attack and the charge, and, and she's the voice of reason. Like, that's how far removed that they've gotten. Like, you, you, I, 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 look, our university campuses are a sacred space because that's where they're truly, I think, along with the, with, with the media, the defenders and protectors of free speech. Like, that's where you should be able to go to hear ideas that you vehemently disagree with. But there is a human line, right? Death, destruction, genocide, like those ethnic cleansing, like those are pretty clearly like problematic. And if you're the president of Harvard or Penn, you need to, it's not that you should be able to say that, you're obligated to say that. And for them to not be able to do that is a sign of the culture in that institution that has gotten so far removed from where, uh, again, not just the idea of the university, but the idea of this, this the, uh, of, of the country, 
Um, and and I think that they're they've done just such I don't want to say irreparable, but but extraordinary damage to the their own ability to capture confidence from our, our society and our culture at a time when we desperately need that in our institutions, that it's really going to have to do um, some, take some self-inventory and, and come to some sort of understanding that what it's allowed itself to become is, is, um, is not only not helping the furtherance of, of our democratic institutions, but it's actually hurting them now. Yeah. Olivia, I'm, I'm curious about what you make of this incident, this this episode, the congressional testimony and these these institutions, but probably uh, we should remind our listeners this is coming on the heels of about nine weeks now of uh, alarming stuff that we've seen on college campuses. That's why they were in front of Congress in the first place. And we've now seen, I think, more and more people left of center sort of, uh, you know, wake up and feel very concerned about what's happening at these uh, left-leaning institutions. And I've gotten the sense from a lot of people I've talked to that there are, there are quite a few liberals now who um, sort of got on the bus that they thought was headed for, you know, gay rights, feminism, equality. And it, I don't know, six weeks ago, dropped them off at a Hamas rally. And they're kind of like, what the hell's going on? So I wonder, how do you think about these elite colleges, universities, that the reputation of uh, higher education now, and did did these um, university presidents do themselves any good by trying to trying to have their cake and eat it too? Ooh, finally an easy one. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, look, uh, I've I have a lot of thoughts about that. I'm a I'm a higher ed kid. Both my parents uh, were. Uh, college professors. My father was a it was a college administrator. Um, one thing I will say is, let's not invest too much power in into college presidents. Okay, these are um, bureaucratic ATMs, right? Their job is to raise a lot of money. They actually pretty rarely set the tone for conversations on campus. That's more like the dean or the provost. Um, I think the complaint that I've heard from my little higher ed people is that. They want to, these folks want to uh, beg off of, uh, of, of, of regulating, criticizing, they were pretty happy to do, but, but regulating this kind of speech on a college campus. But they've been regulating speech for a while now, right? I mean, I, I, went, to, uh, I went to Columbia University at the height of politically correct. Oh. So I've some famili- I have some familiarity with, <laughs> you know, with debates over policing speech. And... Um, These are the people who brought also, us microaggressions, and <laughs> well, that's what that's what the people that I've talked to have said, have said to me in the last week or so is, wait a second, um, we've seen students and faculty and staff alike get punished for other speech, and. Now they're just dis- now these college presidents are discovering these actually the way they put it was these these universities not the, not the individuals but these universities are suddenly discovering the merits of saying faculty and student speech you know hands off so that's the complaint I've heard the most from from my higher ed folks mm-hmm. um, whether it's going to trigger like a serious reevaluation I don't know I do want to say the debate itself is obviously extremely new in terms of degree right we have not seen this in a long time on college campuses, this level of, uh, of harassment and violence. But it is not new in nature. I mean, when I was an undergraduate, there was a speaker invited to campus 
um, who had who had uh, expressed anti-Semitic views. Um, the there was a protest against bringing him to campus. There were assurances that surely there he would not reprise his statements. And the opening line um, in, of his remarks was, "It's good to be back at Columbia University in the city of New York." Um, so, so this is not this is not a you know this has been a rolling debate for a really long time on on these on these college campuses, um, uh, and I just don't. I just don't expect it to go away. I don't expect that that these that schools are going to find a magical solution. I, I'm sorry to keep bringing my undergraduate experience, which after all is in like the Taft administration. But one of the debates, one of the debates that 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 happened on the Columbia campus in in between '88 and '92 was um, a speech code, and and central to this proposed speech code was that uh, a speaker would be responsible for the actions of people who heard that speaker. Okay. One of my, one of my classmates at the time, um, was the first openly gay peer I ever had. And he got up and he said, so wait a second, if I stand in the middle of campus and I say, I'm gay and I'm proud to be gay. And someone comes up to me and punches me in the face. We're both expelled. The speech code did not, the speech code was not ratified. Um, so, uh, you know, it's been, it's been a, it's been a clumsy, I'm going to argue it's been a clumsy century old conversation on college campuses. That's just really flared up very, very badly in the, in the last two months. Um, I don't think there's a simple solution. I don't think, I certainly don't think that these universities are going to come up with a magical solution because if there were such a magical solution, they would have found one, uh, you know, even, even since I was in college. My concern is that they, double down and then just continue to add more uh, sort of domains of speech that become increasingly unacceptable. And, uh, and that's a one-way ratchet and eventually the thing just breaks. Um, as opposed to recognizing the wisdom of allowing freedom of expression in the first place. And um, I don't know, it, it, it doesn't feel like the, I think you mentioned that like maybe this is a lesson for them. I'm not sure that they're going to learn the, the right lesson. That's what I'm concerned about. Now that we're up to speed on some of the biggest stories of this week, let's talk about what we're watching under the radar or where, wherever it falls on the radar. Mike, what did you bring today? There is an unfolding story, which I think is quite significant. And the, the, the Washington Post actually has been covering this extensively and the LA Times, I think, followed up with it. And that is this, this Univision story where Donald Trump came and visited. It happened a couple of weeks ago, but the story is not going away. In a nutshell, basically, Univision, this Spanish-language media giant, invited Donald Trump to come down and gave him what was, I think, widely, uh, correctly regarded as a kind of a softball interview. Um, this caused extraordinary consternation in the ranks of especially Democratic uh, politics and organizations, Latino organizations, saying, how could this possibly be? We've always kind of looked to Univision as this trusted source of news and information. And um, it's 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 a fascinating story, and I think it's actually as as uh, you know, just a small niche of people are watching it now. I think it could actually be one of the really the foundational stories of the 2024 election cycle because it speaks to the changing nature of the Latino electorate, which of course I watch very closely. These two institutions uh, in the Hispanic community, the Democratic Party and Univision have really reached the end of the demographic cul-de-sac that has saw both of the rise to power 
Univision is trying to adjust because they're realizing there's no more money to be had with the way that they're doing it through political advertising. And they're seeing the polls uh, and election results over the past 10 years showing this rightward shift and having to give a more balanced perspective. The Democratic Party and Latino organizations don't have that benefit. They can't adjust like that. Any net loss they have from their quote-unquote market share could have extremely significant electoral impacts. So now they're kind of turning their, their, their cannons in at each other. And Univision is saying, well, we're here to be fair and balanced. And the Democrats are saying, well, no, that's, you know, you, you can't be pro-Trump. Or, and they're like, well, we're not pro-Trump. We're giving him the same uh, platform we've been giving you for 30 years. And they're like, well, that's not fair. And they're like, well, maybe it hasn't been fair. You've been <laughs> the beneficiary of this bias for 30 years. And it feels like betrayal at this point. And, and it's going to have, I think, it's going to really test the ability of Latino organizations uh, advocacy organizations and um, the Biden team's ability to make this adjustment on a vote share that they cannot lose a single vote from anymore. There are not enough white college-educated women to be had after ten years of slippage and post Dobbs. You can't get any more. You're getting your 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 maximum you know capacity here. You can't lose black and brown voices. Latinos obviously being a larger vote share now than African Americans. And they're on the verge of, of of seeing even further leakage, and they don't seem to have a way out of this conundrum. So uh, we'll see what happens. It's going to be unfolding over the course of the next year. Sure is. By the way, I know we've talked about this on episodes past quite a few times. Have you received any feedback, uh, helpful or unhelpful, from people maybe in Democratic campaign world about this problem? Have, has, have people begun you know, talking to you about it? It's fascinating because the short answer is yes, there has been outreach, but it came, it's coming from circles that you would not expect. It's actually sort of the Latino, quote unquote, experts in the campaign that are still denying that this is actually happening. And it really speaks to organizational, you know, kind of atrophy is a lot of these people have made their careers, their contracts, their titles. Same thing that was happening with us when we're watching it unfold in the Republican Party with the Lincoln Project as Trump's rise is people know it's a concern. They know that the math and science uh, is is uh, exactly you know in line with what I'm saying. It's obvious. It's demographic data. But from the orthodoxy standpoint, no one wants to rock the boat because they've made so much money uh, and they, they continue to feed off of these groups and this stereotype and this narrative in the Latino community that they're not going to get off the gravy train. And if, if they don't do it quickly, and I mean like by January, start moving in a different direction, uh, you could see the Democratic Party heading towards the same sort of electoral train wreck um, or at least at least head down the same organizational, you know, um, calcification that Republicans did in the Trump and the Trump era. It's 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 not it's not a good it's not a good moment. And and yeah, but but enough, enough professional pollsters know what the problem is. It's can they get over the internal factions to say this is what is happening? Right. Not all Latinos are Spanish speaking immigrants. All right. This rightward shift is not just WhatsApp misinformation. Like we've got a we've got a message problem. We've got a fix. So we've got a policy problem. Yeah. Policy problem. And if the if those adults, you know, step up early and start saying fix it, it's fixable. If they don't, you're gonna end up running against time. And that's that's a really bad scenario. I've just got a quick thing to throw out that I'm watching, which is the uh, the possibility of increased capital requirements at banks. The Senate just held a hearing, I think it was yesterday, and it was quite a quite a sight to see the CEOs of all of the largest banks sort of lined up at a table staring at the 
Senate committee. But basically, for our listeners, why the, why does this matter? It matters because uh, when the 2008 global financial crisis happened, we we looked at the financial industry and we said, okay, well, let's not ever let them do that again, right? They were basically trading in these really exotic derivative products uh, that created a ton of risk on paper and debt on paper. And as soon as that debt was unsustainable, the system came crashing down uh, to the tune of uh, huge bailouts. Okay, we fast forward now and we operate on a fractional reserve system, which means these banks at, the, at this point in time currently have about $1 for every $10 that they lend out in capital. Well, we just had three of the largest, if you put them together, bank failures that we have seen since the 2008 uh, crisis. The, the, the total assets, I think, of those three bank failures dwarf the failures that happened in 2008. So on a dollar basis, much larger than we saw in 2008. And so as a response to that, or in order to shore up the banking system, uh, the Senate's considering requiring banks to keep more capital on hand for every dollar that they lend out, which means instead of having you know, only 10% of actual capital reserves for every dollar they create in debt on paper, um, they'd raise that. They'd, have that. they'd have more capital on hand so that they could weather their losses better. That would make the banking industry more resilient in the face of uh, uncertainty and higher interest rates, which creates a lot of risk for them. The trouble is, if they do that, it's going to make lending a whole lot more difficult to get. And that lending is what startups require to fund their payrolls. It means they'll have to consider laying off more people or not hiring as many people. It's going to hurt jobs, but also it's going to hurt people who are looking for mortgages, even at eight, nine percent mortgages. Capital is going to be more difficult to come by if they increase these rates. So I'm just looking at how this is going to affect the mood of voters, particularly working class voters who can't sell their homes if they have a home now, can't really buy a home now because interest rates are too high. And if you if you tighten that ratchet even further, I don't know how I, I don't want to make any predictions, but it seems like you're going to make an already difficult economy more difficult for the people who need access to to capital. So uh, we'll see if they go through with it, but it was it was pretty it was pretty funny to me to see all these bank CEOs lined up to protest this potential increase in capital requirements because then that means they get to do less of the very risky lending uh, that they're that they're doing now. So Olivier, what'd you bring for us this week? Hmm. So I am watching the assertiveness of state governments in the face of inaction from Congress on a bunch of major issues of the day. Um, If we accept that the pandemic gave the country kind of a federalism booster shot in that we we were reminded of the powers of governors and reminded of the powers of legislatures, it's very interesting to see now that uh, state legislatures are, for example, restricting foreign ownership of farmland in America. Um, We are seeing state legislatures restrict access to TikTok. We are seeing state legislatures um, act to limit the use of AI in political ads and in the use of non-consensual porn. Um, The U.S. Congress is struggling to keep the lights on, and so these state legislatures are taking the lead on a lot of these things. I'm not going to say whether or not they're doing the right thing on any of those issues. That's not my place as a reporter, but it is very striking to me to see the degree to which these legislatures are acting on, again, you know, the question of, uh, you know, you raised an interesting point earlier about the, the West's vulnerabilities or strengths becoming vulnerabilities. 
Well, you can sort of see that with AI and with deep fakes, right? Where um, obviously the use of AI to show someone doing something in a, in a parody way has to be protected. But the debate is over if you're actively trying to fool the voters into thinking that your opponent you know, did copulate with a goat. Um, it's different. What's again? What's really striking to me is that these really big debates. I mean, there are, there is some legislation on the Hill about about ownership, foreign ownership of farmland. There's some legislation on, on the Hill about limiting the use of AI in politics. There is some legislation on the Hill about about TikTok. But really, what you're seeing is state legislature after state legislature is taking the lead. Um, now, are they begging for uh, a a court to step in and resolve the patchwork? Maybe. Um, are they begging Congress to step in to set a national standard? Maybe, but I don't know that it, I don't know that it matters because of the way Congress doesn't work today. Um, but that is something that I've been watching. That's been it's been very very interesting to me to see how they have been stepping forward. And these these are huge national issues. None of these issues are parochial. You know, we're not talking TikTok is not limited to Western states. Um, AI is not limited to the Northeast. These are big national questions, and they seem to be increasingly uh, decided at the uh, at the state level. And I think it's fascinating, completely fascinating, largely overlooked. Where do you think this goes? Do you think that trend continues, or do you think eventually frustration with Congress builds to a breaking point? I think it's going to be heavily dependent on whether there's some kind of um, some kind of incident. So on TikTok, for example, you could see um, uh, sort of an after. Uh, uh, any analysis of the last uh, two months, right, since October 7th. Um, someone's going to put together a really good, smart analysis of how TikTok shaped American public opinion in that stretch. Um, and that might be a triggering effect. It might have a triggering effect on Congress. Um, it may turn out that, you know, Chinese purchases of farmland that abuts military installations, right? It may turn out that, that, we see a triggering event there where, you know, oh yeah, it actually turns out this wasn't just, you know, quote unquote Chinese entities. It actually was, you know, a, a people's liberation army cutout that might galvanize national action in a way that's different. Um, AI, you know, um, it's, it's obviously on, it's being discussed, but there too, I think if there were some kind of major triggering event, event, you might see action from Congress, but on, on none of these issues is, is action at the federal level all that likely? I think. I think. I think that's probably right. Okay, uh, gang, before we flip over to Politicology Plus, where we're going to talk about that broken Congress and the lawmakers fleeing for the exits at record pace, where can everybody find you on the internet, Olivier? Uh, I am on the, the hellscape formerly known as Twitter at OKNOX. <laughs> Um, you can find me uh, for now at the Washington Post, where I write the Daily Two Hundred Two newsletter. Um, and I think that's probably I'm on Insta- I'm on Instagram, but I never remember my address because I don't really use it for any work purposes. <laughs> All right, fair enough, Mike. What uh, what newfangled platform are you dabbling in this week? I'm still stuck on Threads, so you can find me on Threads at Madrid underscore Mike One. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening today. If you have questions about anything we discussed today, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. Whether it's an episode idea, a topic recommendation, or just a simple note about what you thought, 
We love to hear from you, and we might even use it on an upcoming episode. Also, if you can head over to the Apple Podcast app and rate us five stars and leave a review there, we'd really appreciate it. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. I'm Ron Steslow, and I'll see you in the next episode.